Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. We recorded this episode from our respective home offices, and like so many podcasts and broadcasts you might be listening to right now, if you hear some extra background noise, that's what's going on, and we hope it won't be too distracting. Today, we're presenting the second of two discussions about strategies for preventing maternal death and injury, in which the United States ranks worst among nations in the developed world. It's a great conversation with lots of good information, so much so that we couldn't get it all into the first episode. Our guest is Carly Hendershot. She's a nurse and patient safety consultant at ECRI with a focus on ambulatory care, particularly in the community health center setting. And as you'll hear, she has a real passion for improving maternal health and outcomes. We'll start by talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on maternal health and safety. So we're recording this in the first day of May in 2020. So we're right, right in the throes worldwide of this COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm guessing we may not have real complete data, but I'm guessing we have a pretty strong sense that the pandemic has probably made all of this worse. <laughs> do we, do we know, what do we know about that at this point? There is definitely some emerging um, you know, evidence, and I'm, I'm going to focus on the postpartum period here, um, that post, women who are postpartum may already be at greater risk or probably are at greater risk um, of various respiratory infections and flu simply because of the tremendous um, stress and changes that the body has gone through throughout pregnancy and delivery. So um, they're already at increased risk of those kinds of infections. So there is, there, it's not known for sure, but there is certainly a chance that they would be also at increased risk of potentially contracting COVID-19. So they would need to be meticulous about all of the infection protection precautions that we've all you know, learned about at this point. Also, one of the other concerns, and this is related to pre- pregnancy as well, is that um, folks are becoming afraid to seek care um, in part because of worries about being um, exposed to infection. And so what we've been seeing uh, for pregnant women is there has apparently been an uptick in women opting for unplanned home births. Mm. Um, Isn't that a planned home birth is not a legitimate option? It certainly is. And many women do opt for that. Um, and you know, have a wonderful, healthy, safe experience. However, that is something that is safer to be planned beforehand and not a decision to be made you know, late in the game without planning. Um, and professional organizations such as the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they, they do consistently um, recommend and say that you know, giving birth in the hospital is the, the you know, safer option. There are various opinions about that. However, um, one thing I think we could probably all agree on is that isn't something that you should be making a decision about at the last minute. And so hospitals have gone to great lengths to 
um, try to ensure that their pregnant patients can come into the hospital and you know deliver safely with all the infection control um, things that they have put into place. Um, however, there is still that fear. Uh, also, sure. some women have actually um, had to give birth without a supportive partner there. Um, due to concerns about infection, either they had tested positive or their partner had, or you know other, other things like that. Um, so hospitals have limited uh, visitation. I'm seeing that most of them are allowing one healthy, you know, essential support person to stay with the mother, thank goodness, because that is really essential to their, you know, healthy and safe delivery, really. Um, but there have been cases where the woman has had to give birth without that, which I think is really tragic. Um, and then I'll say one other thing that I think is really important related to COVID and in the postpartum period is that we already have talked about how women who are postpartum often increase, um, you know, a drop off in the support or attention that they have been receiving. And so they already stand a risk of being potentially more isolated. Um, after they are done giving birth and they're home with their new baby. And there's a lot of stresses that can come with that. We're talking about being in a situation where we have a tremendous increase in potential isolation of people above and beyond what they would have normally be, may have been having in, in a postpartum period. Um, and we're also seeing, I think we're becoming completely aware now of the tremendous toll and effect this is taking on uh, mental and emotional health. So if you put those things together, we know that postpartum women are already vulnerable to, for example, postpartum depression. Um, and you add these additional stressors to that, I, I think we're looking at something potentially really worrisome, you know, down the road based on this. So I'm very concerned about those postpartum patients who are at, at home now and perhaps even more isolated than they would have been um, previously. Yeah, I, and, you know, I, want, I wanted to explore that a little bit because I think, you know, we talked about the one scenario of, you know, say a misdiagnosis of the cardiomyopathy. I imagine there are a lot of factors, even in, even in normal times, that might, um, you know, there are going to be some groups of women who are at maybe higher risk of either um, not following through uh, with, with scheduled postpartum visits for themselves, um, you know, for any number of reasons, all the, all the different social determinants that may influence that, and all the gaps in, in care that may be, you know, present, as I say, even in normal times, I'm, I'm willing to bet that the pandemic is, is just exposing and widening all of those gaps. That's exactly right. And it, it contributes to, again, the mental health concerns that I was articulating, and um, absolutely any any situation, um, as you mentioned, the social determinants of health, um, that is reducing anyone's access to health care, um, I think is coming into play even more significantly now. And in particular with maternal health, one really important thing to make note of is that there are um, tremendous um, actual racial disparities, racial and ethnic disparities in terms of in the U.S., of mater uh, maternal mortality and I would, you know, maternal morbidity too or, or injury. Um, mm -hmm. So for, for example, um, sort of the most recent statistics that we have, um, and, and I find this really disturbing, Black and American Indian Alaska Native women were 
three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women in the United States, and these disparities and gaps are not improving. So we are finding that lack of access to care has really impacted these rates. There are a lot of other contributing factors as well, um, but these racial and ethnic gaps um, are going to be exacerbated when we have even decreased access to healthcare as is occurring right now. Um, whether appointments have had to be canceled or rescheduled or whether individuals are simply afraid to go to healthcare facilities because of concerns about infection exposure, which is not unfounded. Mm -hmm. um, there is, we do think that there is going to be this gap in um, treatment that is going to have some long-term effects. So I want to ask you the same question from two different perspectives with regard to some red flags to look for. Uh, first, let's take it from the perspective of a mother who's just been discharged or maybe uh, a family member who's at home caring for her in the days immediately after discharge. I think it might be natural for a person, especially a, especially a first-time mother, uh, to pass off some of the warning signs we talked about as just the exhaustion that comes with having a newborn at home, or maybe to think that whatever she's feeling is, is quote-unquote normal. So what are some things that she should be looking for that are actually a sign that this is not normal and she needs to go get care? Yeah, that's a great question because that's some of, you know, some of when I was referring to earlier, the discharge teaching um, that needs to happen, I would argue that that needs to start in the prenatal period with postpartum planning. And part of that should be teaching women and a support person. That's very important, not just the patient, but a support person about these warning signs, because often it's going to be a support person or someone else who may notice something is wrong and may try to encourage someone to get care versus the patient themselves. So that applies in this situation too. But some of the red flags um, are actually red flags for other concerning conditions that wouldn't even be related to pregnancy. So these are things someone should pay attention to no matter what. Hmm. Certainly fever, um, shaking, chills, um, shortness of breath, discomfort or pain in the chest or in the abdomen, weakness, uh, feeling faint, a rapid pulse. Um, in terms of bleeding, anything what is generally considered heavy bleeding is, is soaking or saturating or filling up a typical pad uh, more, than one, more than one of those in an hour or a very sudden gush of blood. Um, Anything along those lines would be considered red flags. However, even before you get to the point of having, for example, um, you know, a high fever, you might start to feel body aches, um, a little weak, a little uncomfortable, a little under the weather. That's something to pay attention to. Um, and I think we're learning more about that now, frankly, with, with our situation with COVID-19 about self-screening, uh, checking mm -hmm. our own temperature. Some of these symptoms could be confused for something less serious, and that's understandable. But I think the thing to really pay attention to is, is it getting worse? Is it getting worse rapidly? Am I just not improving? Am I starting to see more and more symptoms? 
Um, another thing that's really important to pay attention to, and this is true for any potentially sort of deterioration in condition, regardless of what might be causing it, is a feeling that something just isn't right. And that feeling could be on behalf of the patient who's experiencing it, or the, the woman who's experiencing it, or a family or support person might notice something just doesn't seem right. Um, that person seems a little confused or they're just not themselves. I know something is different. Those kinds of statements healthcare providers really need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. um, that can be a little hard if someone's calling the office to report rather vague symptoms. You know, if they're calling their family practitioner or their obstetrician's office after they've been discharged and had a baby and they might be reporting symptoms that don't necessarily sound outstanding um, at the time. Sometimes those symptoms may not seem serious at, at first. Um, however, it's really important that healthcare providers uh, really listen carefully. And if they hear those words, I just don't feel right. Something's just not right. I have never felt this before from the patient or a family member saying, I know something's wrong. Um, those are red flags and there needs to be additional questioning to determine whether someone, for example, might need some urgent um, intervention to come to the office or even to go to an emergency room. You know, we have a long uh, history in, in this country of, of um, you know, women's health concerns not being taken seriously by their providers. Um, <clears throat> what are some other things that the provider's office should be listening for Again, whether it's the woman herself who calls or whether it's a support person, what are some some things that should be triggering in the person taking the call? Uh, oh, I better I better really take this seriously beyond just sort of the normal imperative to take everyone seriously. Yes, that and that of course would come first. Um, I would go back to some of these red flags that we're talking about, and I think developing um, a telephone triage protocol. Um, in, 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 for example, an outpatient, you know, or ambulatory setting for, for postpartum patients um, would be indicated so that whoever's answering the phone, and, and we certainly hope this is a medically trained individual who has training in, in triaging on the phone and asking the appropriate questions. Um, but the first thing is to first of all, take seriously the fact that this individual is postpartum to begin with and to have an understanding that that's a higher risk um, time. So have that framework to begin with. Um, and then the series of questions that should be asked are not unlike some of the questions that we are, you know, using for screening right now in our current situation. Um, but things like, you know, has the person checked their temperature? Um, have they had a fever? Um, and, and all those other questions about the red flags, such as have you had shaking chills? Um, have you felt weak, dizzy, um, very fatigued? Have you had heavy, heavier bleeding? Um, has your bleeding increased? You know, how much bleeding are you having? It's really good to try to quantify it. There are even some resources that will show a picture of a, a pad and an, a certain amount of blood on it and what might be considered normal and what isn't. And that may sound a little uncomfortable to some listeners, but that's the kind of thing that really helps patients and their family members judge whether something's wrong or not. Mm -hmm. So it's probably, it's not enough to really say, well, you know, how heavy is the bleeding? It's important to try to 
specify and quantify the amount more specifically. You know, have you passed large clots of bloods? What blood, excuse me, was there a sudden gush of blood? Um, you know, even down, drilling down to really specific questions like what color is it? Um, those kinds of things are, are, would be very important for a healthcare provider to ask and take note of those answers. So I would have a, you know, a streamlined triage protocol with, you know, when you first determine that a woman is in the postpartum phase and then a, the, you know, standard set of questions that you work through and ask with triggers for the questions that would raise more red flags and raise more concerns. And then you could escalate that patient up to making an appointment if necessary, or, you know, if, if you're very concerned that they go seek uh, emergency care. And I guess kind of implied in everything you just said is, we better know that this woman is a new mother. <laughs> but, you know, uh, once, we've, once we know who she is, if we don't even know that detail, that's going to change how we, it might change how we interact with her. It is, and I think, you know, uh, for the most part, when a woman has been, you know, a prenatal patient and then, you know, has a baby and then is going to come back as a postpartum patient, you know, certainly in an office practice setting, they're going to be aware of that. But some places where that might, that de that very important detail may not be asked or it could be overlooked is if a woman does seek care at an perhaps in an urgent care or an emergency department, especially if they're um, longer out in their postpartum period. I think a lot of healthcare providers, most of them might recognize if you're just within a few days of that, there can be things that may happen. There's less understanding and awareness that you could be weeks out and still mm -hmm. have related complications. Um, also, this is one of the issues that has been you know, recognized in doing our tabulation of the maternal mortality rates, the maternal death rates, and the severe maternal injury rates. Um, the, literally, the way that um, medical records are kept and diagnostic codes are entered into records, and also even the words that are put on death certificates as the cause of death, if people are not asking the question, of whether this patient was postpartum, then you're not going to be able to get the data that would show you this is related. You know, this is a relate related to being postpartum or a childbirth or pregnancy related death or injury. So yes, I think it needs to become a lot more routine. That's a routine screening question that we ask women, you know, of childbearing age. Um, not just perhaps how many children have you had and you know when did you have children but you know are are you specifically are you in the postpartum period and and counting that as the whole year following a pregnancy um i also think one other important thing that may sometimes present more subtly but needs to be screened you know actively for is potential um, mental health and depression concerns and substance use disorder um, again, because of the additional stresses that can happen and perhaps just from the actual um, physical and chemical changes that can occur during, due to pregnancy and mm -hmm. uh, following delivery um, is something that needs to be on everyone's radar every bit as much as someone who might have an infection or might be bleeding or might have high blood pressure um, is the potential for new depression or worsening or escalating depression. 
So there are really brief screening tools that can be used um, for that and also for substance use disorder screening and um, postpartum moms who, who appear to be well and healthy um, should not be exempted from those kinds of screenings. Carly, I imagine there are a lot of folks doing research and, and making recommendations and guidance about how to handle all of these challenges. Uh, what are some of the key organizations and places that folks should look to for that information? Yeah, there are organizations at the forefront of this for sure. I would recommend um, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists, AWON, which is A-W-H-O-N-N, the Association um, for Women's Health Obstetrics and Neonatal Nurses. I'm sorry if I didn't say that exactly right, but A-W-H-O-N-N. Um, also, the CDC has good statistics. Um, maternal safety bundles are put out there by the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health, which is um, AIM. I also recommend the California Maternal Quality Care Collective, which is CMQCC. So those are some of the um, main organizations to start with, and, and all of them are going to reference you to some other organizations. There are patient advocacy, advocacy groups and the like. Um, there are groups working on uh, racial and ethnic disparities. So any of those sources that I you know, mentioned can get you even further. Okay. So, you know, Carly, as we wrap up today, um, what's something that somebody who's listening today, regardless of the care setting they're in, uh, what's something they can do right now in the short term to start moving towards making care safer? So if I'm, it's hard to pick one thing. Okay. But <laughs> if I'm going to have to pick one thing here, here's what I would say. I think implementing or reviewing and updating triage protocols um, for postpartum patients is something that you could do quickly and fairly easily and applies to all settings. Um, emergency departments have triage protocols. Take a look at what you're doing with postpartum patients. First of all, in your initial triage of women, is, it be, is that question even being asked? So let's start there. Um, in an outpatient setting, a lot of the triage occurs on the telephone. So go over those protocols and make sure this is including appropriate questions to determine if a patient is postpartum and to elicit those responses about potential warning signs. Um, and when you do that kind of, when you make those kind of changes, you also have to have training of staff that goes with it always. You can't just change it and then give it to people and say, do this now. There has to be you know, some good training with it. So that would be my number one. And that's something, again, could go to different settings. Carly, if that's the starting point, what are, what are some of the other things we might do as what I'm imagining are, are a potentially a very large number of, of other interventions we could take? Yeah, I would really recommend um, simulation and drills. Um, this is already done in, in a lot of, in most hospital settings, I would say, but I think it could be done more. A lot of times when it comes to obstetric related drills, um, it often relates to um, possibly hemorrhage um, or something um, that has to do with a, a baby who's, who um, may be in distress. So I would say expand those drills and simulation to outpatient areas if you're not doing those already and include other postpartum emergencies with that. Um, that's one thing that I think would be really helpful. Drills and, and simulations have shown to um, help improve care in many cases. So um, that's one. I would suggest 
having an interdisciplinary focus uh, when it comes to particularly in the hospital setting, um, taking care of postpartum patients. Um, so the labor and delivery units and those providers tend to be um, very well versed in this, but I would incorporate emergency department staff with that. Um, I would also suggest making time prenatally and also in the hospital for um, postpartum teaching and discharge planning. So some, one concept that I think could gain some traction in the, um, in the outpatient setting is doing prenatal care planning and having a set format for that um, that incorporates warning signs of complications. Um, there's a lot of other stuff to plan for, like who's gonna be your support at home and do you have breastfeeding support and those, that kind of thing. But, but the, the warning signs and education about complications are not often folded into that. So I think that should be started early. And then again, as I mentioned before, I believe in the hospital setting, um, there needs to be a strong program around discharge teaching for um, patients who have given birth that is not just um, focused on taking care of the baby, but also taking care of mom. And again, that should cover those warning signs of all the different potential complications. So making sure there's staffing and time to do that. Those are some of the things that I you know, would strongly recommend. Carly Hendershot, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about how ECRI can help from our website at www.ecri.org. You'll find a link to download the executive brief of our 2020 list of top 10 patient safety concerns, and ECRI members can log in to read the full report. You'll also find our COVID-19 Resource Center with publicly available resources to help providers across the continuum of care. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.